We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This episode, we'll be talking, well, breaking news. Jesse Marsh being fired. Uh, Gatsby, weddings, Club World Cup, Man City cheaters, goalkeepers, and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this Monday, February 6th in the year 2023? I am doing well. Uh, programming note, producer Sean Sullivan is back. He was called into jury duty last week, but ultimately was not selected for a case. If you watch these true crime docs, when they interview the jurors afterwards, not exactly the sharpest tools in the shed, but evidently Sean Sullivan was a bridge too far. It was, yes. This, they, and he might have uh, you know, dodged a real bullet there when it comes to that, because evidently the case that he was being considered for was going to last a long time. So we are the beneficiaries of this, uh, uh, of, you know, of what has happened to him. So we'll, we welcome him back with, uh, with open arms. I say that before the show has gone off, so we'll see. You know, it still remains to be seen. Um, you see anything or uh, do anything interesting uh, over the weekend? I've uh, knocked out another Oscar Best Picture nominee, Triangle of Sadness. Okay. Which I thought was interesting. I'm still I kind even of heard that one. What's that, what was that one about? It's this dark comedy about rich people and this luxurious yacht, and there's a shipwreck, and all of a sudden the servants are running things, and it's supposed to be this commentary on class and. Um, it's, uh, interesting. I, I'd be curious okay. to hear your take on it. All right. I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Uh, is it uh, subtitled and all that kind of stuff? And uh, one of those? No, uh, no. In, okay. in English. Regular. Okay. So I've now seen eight of the 10, by the way, just wow. missing Avatar and women talking. You're incredible. Good for you. You, you haven't seen Avatar? I, it seems like everybody's seen it. I, we, I haven't seen it, but okay. Uh, let's see. What do I have? Um, uh, from a viewing perspective, I watched the uh, new Dionne Warwick uh, documentary on HBO uh, called Don't Make Me Over. It's really good for those that don't know who Dionne Warwick is. Wonderful, incredible, legendary uh, voice. And I came, you know, uh, to see her first actually on an old show back in the uh, back in the 80s called Solid Gold, which was this musical 
show that would showcase people. And she was one of the hosts. But she has an incredible career and hearing her go back and talk about that career and all the challenges that she had, um, both not just, you know, just from a business and musical perspective, but societal and cultural and all that kind of stuff was really uh, incredible, wonderful voice and um, a legend that thankfully is still around to be able to uh, tell that that story. So that was good. Um, and then you remember, Mossy, last show uh, last week, John from Richmond called up about his son, Eli, who uh, was asking for some recommendations in terms of the great American novel, which we talked about. And it, it got me thinking and I actually went back. Well, first off, question for you. I listen to books. Um, do you count that as reading a book? I suppose. <laughs> It was kind of some disdain. It was a little bit of disrespect in the way that you looked at that. I, I I do count it because it's you know you're you're still hearing the exact same thing. Obviously, you're not doing the thing, but just from a um, a time perspective, it, it's a whole lot easier for me, and I at times enjoy it uh, much more. And you know when I'm puttering around, and I was doing a lot of stuff around the house uh, this weekend when I got home, so I went back and actually uh, reread, and I'm going to say reread uh, the Great Gatsby and Grapes of Wrath. And, you know, you had mentioned that Great Gatsby, you would put that one as number one. I, it, still, it still holds up. And I hadn't read uh, or heard it <laughs> in a number of years. And certainly Grapes of Wrath, I hadn't for a number of years. Grapes of Wrath g- gets a little long and a little um, preachy. And uh, if I had to pick between the two, it still would stay with, uh, I'd still stay with uh, Gabs- Gatsby. Yeah. So Great Gatsby was, uh, was really, really good. So I'm going to go back and read some more. Incidentally, I'm still on this Middle East kick. I finished reading that book, Ghost Spy, I mentioned last time about the former CIA spy, Robert Ames. I went to Barnes & Noble this weekend. I bought two more books, this one called Ghost Wars, which is about the U.S.'s involvement in Afghanistan, and then another one, Mossad, which chronicles all of their operations. But people are going to start wondering about me if they check the records of all the books that I've bought lately. <laughs> Oh, you can't do that. The the book police, you know, what's in what's in your wallet? Well, what's in your library? Or, or this case nowadays, it's you know, who are you following and all that kind of stuff. No, don't worry, my friend. I don't. I don't. Y- yes, people get judged on the books that they read, but just because it is a controversial book, you know, I'm not I'm not going to look at you any differently, uh, my friend. Uh, you, so, what was the one that I? Uh, let me pull it up here. Um, oh yeah. Freezing order. I think I mentioned that on a pod a little earlier. If you're into this whole spy stuff, it's about you know the Russian spies and the poisoning of uh, you know uh, different people and stuff like that. So you might uh, you might dig that one. Okay, uh, red light this candle. Let's do it. All right. Well, listen, we're going to start this thing right off the bat with the breaking news. We all came into work today and uh, we heard the news about Jesse Marsh. And if you are listening, uh, that's great. If you're watching, you'll actually see that we've we've added some stuff to the uh, show. We have some more visuals here. There's Jesse Marsh there. So well done to uh, our team here for for putting that in order. And it just makes it that much better and uh, coincides with the stuff that we are talking about. But Jesse Marsh is no longer the coach of Leeds. He was fired. I know people call it sacking or stepping away or all that kind of stuff. Ultimately, from an American perspective, the dude was fired. Okay, and every coach gets fired at a, at a certain point, unless you are living in completely rarefied air. And uh, this is not necessarily a surprise, given the struggles uh, with where leads are right now. And for those that are uh, are keeping track, they are tied at 18 points, at 17th place, just above Everton, who also have 18 points, and uh, you know, flirting right now with that 
relegation zone. And we saw last year that they were flirting with it too. So this type of precarious position, I think, is what has led to this decision. Not the first coach to get fired in this type of situation, uh, and certainly uh, certainly not the last. And as I said, I think it is not a surprise and a fair firing given you know, the potential disaster that it is from a financial perspective for leads to go back down. Um, initial, thought, initial thoughts, my friend, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what this means and what this says, and more importantly, maybe what it doesn't say. Well, first off, to give Sean Sullivan some credit, he already had us opening the podcast today talking leads. He felt like Wesson McKinney making his debut mm-hmm. and Jesse Marsh being on the hot seat warranted that. And lo and behold, Jesse Marsh is no longer on the hot seat. He has been fired. As <laughs> he is on no seat. He lasted 11 months. His debut was in March of last year. He replaced Marcelo Bielsa with Leeds battling relegation. He did just enough to keep them up. They beat Brentford on the last day to finish 17th. As you mentioned, they're 17th now. Just four wins in 20 league games. No wins in six league games since returning from the World Cup. The final straw was a 1-0 defeat away to Nottingham Forest this weekend. Welsh striker Brennan Johnson, who played against the U.S. at the World Cup, scored the only goal. Uh, So Jesse is out. And listen, uh, you're usually attuned to anti-American bias, but it sounds like you don't think that's the case here. You feel like if Jesse was any nationality, this might have gone the same way, given the numbers I just mentioned. Oh, I do think that the fact that Jesse Marsh is American is part of this whole discussion. But Regardless of what his nationality is, any coach in this position at this point, I think it's fair to say this is not going in the right direction. We need somebody to come in and try to fix it uh, with with, with uh, the possibility of relegation at play. In the same way it it, it was last year, and Jesse kept them from going uh, from going down. But I think that you know this this raises a lot of different questions uh, as it pertains to Jesse Marsh and the way that he is viewed somebody asked me this morning on twitter um you know about the the ted lasso effect and look if you are a coach and you are an american coach and if you're an american coach in the epl uh in 2023 inevitably you are going to get the shadow of Ted Lasso and things are going to be framed in Ted Lasso. And by the way, if you're Jesse Marsh, who leaned heavily into the American part of him, and I love that about Jesse. That's something that I love that he did that, you know, but this is going to be, you know, used uh, for those that want to make a point about the quality or I guess the lack of quality when it comes to American coaches. You know, this follows up Bob Bradley uh, at the EPL, who did not have a a good time. And whether you're an American coach or whether you're an American player, what you do is going to be used against you and, in a greater sense, is going to be used against American soccer, American soccer players, American soccer coaches. Is that fair or right? Who cares? That's the reality. And that is what is, is going to happen. And so this is not good, not just for Jesse Marsh, but this is not good for American coaches and for American soccer to have something like this happen. In terms of what's next for Jesse, does he immediately become a prime candidate for the U.S. men's national team job? He, Jesse Marsh immediately, and rightly so, and I think fairly, becomes a candidate on the short list of candidates for the U.S. men's national team, given, uh, I think, his undeniable talent. Uh, and, and also, 
he benefits from the cachet of being associated with coaching in Europe. And there might be much better coaches that are coaching in other places or coaching in MLS. Um, but again, it's, it's like, it's like a player that goes overseas. Your profile is incredibly enhanced the minute that you hit the tarmac in Europe. Jesse Marsh, if you look at it just from a pure performance perspective, it's been spotty at best. And certainly when you look at you know what he did, obviously started at the Montreal Impact, then went to the New York Red Bulls, then went to Red Bull, then went to RB Leipzig, and, and then finished up at Leeds. The pathway that he not just chose, but really used to his benefit. And again, as I said before, credit him because he recognized a back door and a much quicker way to get over to Europe by using the Red Bull system. But he's also part of that Red Bull system. And there's the question as to whether that has curtailed or hurt his ability to be successful uh, successful going uh, going forward. But I, I, I think that he will be a part of it if he... If, if this was Jesse Marsh and these were just teams in MLS, I'm not sure anybody would be saying that he should be a part of that candidate list for the U.S. men's national team. If he stays in Europe, it'd be interesting to see what level job he would get because this is two sackings in short order here, mm -hmm. Leipzig and Leeds, but he did well at Salzburg before that. I think he's still generally considered a promising young coach with good ideas, but I don't know. Does he? Would he have to really come down a level here um, if he stays in Europe? Yeah, I mean, I don't see a lot of people snapping him up, uh, given what he is. And, you know, it, it also brings up, a, up another question, and this isn't going to be a long conversation about pro-rel or anything, but the amount of games that Jesse Marsh coached with Leeds, where you came out of it saying, you know, they played really well. They actually had plenty of possession. They looked at times as the better team. And... They just, you know, for whatever reason, weren't able to score goals. And then, you know, even in the game this weekend, if you just look at it in totality, Leeds were the better team. But this isn't about being the better team. This is about this is about winning. And when you have promotion relegation hanging over, and in this case, relegation uh, hanging over, it forces you to do things and to play in a certain way. We saw what Sean Judge has come in. And look, I know that the game is subjective. and I look at the game differently that you look at the game and others look at, uh, look at the game. But in general, there is a widely accepted view as to what pretty soccer is and what rudimentary, raw, pragmatic soccer is. But in this moment, what Jesse Marsh needed to be and what ultimately I think he didn't want to or couldn't be was that pragmatic type of player. He's a romantic. And he was a romantic playing with a Leeds team that in that moment did not need a, a romantic at its, at its helm because of relegation and the threat of relegation. So in a certain sense, relegation dumbs down the game and makes it ugly out of necessity. And, and that's, not a, that's not an argument against promotion relegation because as I said before, I love promotion relegation. It's fun. It's interesting at times. And at times it can be incredibly uh, entertaining. But aesthetically, I think it oftentimes forces teams to play what a lot of people would consider anti-soccer. So, uh, so it'll be interesting if and when Jesse Marsh has next job, what type of scenario it is. What's interesting is when they got rid of Bielsa, Everyone assumed they would bring in a Sean Dyche type that it was just about survival. Instead, they went for Jesse, who's more of a romantic, 
and tried to do something more extravagant there. So now, a year or so later, they fired Jesse in a similar situation. Do they <laughs> now accept that they have to bring in a Sean Dyche type? Although Jesse did keep him up last year, so I don't know. It'll be interesting to see which way Leeds goes. But as for the American players at Leeds, uh, Tyler Adams started this weekend. Wesson McKinney came on in the second half for his debut. Brendan Aronson didn't play. He was battling appendicitis during the week, so he was listed among the subs, but it sounds like he wasn't really available. Tyler Adams has been great this season. I can't imagine there's a manager in the world that would walk in there and not want him on the team. The other two guys, Wesson McKinney, it's a loan with an option to buy right. for 33 million euros. And Brendan Aronson, after a hot start, has really faded. I know he's a player that you can't just judge by goals and assists, but his numbers are pretty paltry for an attacking player. So those two guys... I think it does depend on who they bring in, what they do the next few months, whether they get relegated or not. I don't think their futures at that club are necessarily uh, solidified. Well, maybe ultimately when this all shakes out from a player perspective and these American players, maybe they end up falling up. Because if they ultimately do go down, I think that there will be a market for some of these players. And who knows, maybe they get into a better situation where they're not always facing the threat of relegation. Uh, you know, you know, uh, before we before we ultimately lead this, if you're, uh, by the way, <laughs> pour one out for Chris Armas, who, <laughs> who came in as Jesse's assistant a week ago, and now here's the situation. Or Weston McKinney, who flew in, and now he's going to have to deal with a, uh, a whole new coach, which isn't the worst thing in the world. He's going to get paid, and he's still a, a, a good player. And, you know, whoever that new coach ultimately is, I think is going to see the quality that, that Weston can bring. But it's going to be now a dogfight to keep themselves out of relegation. And ultimately, that will be the charge of whoever comes in. And if, you're, if you don't think it's heading in the right direction, this is the time to do it. And you, 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 don't, wait, you don't wait any longer. But again, um, you know, how Jesse Marsh is framed through all of this uh, right now and going forward is really going to be interesting. And I, I, and I bring it back to that, that Ted Lasso thing where you know, the Ted Lasso show obviously leans into the stereotypes of Americans and American coaches and American soccer because it makes for good TV. And I watch it. You watch it. Millions of people watch it. But the Ted Lasso thing is not hurting American soccer. The Ted Lasso thing has nothing to do with why Jesse Marsh uh, got fired. Yeah, you know, they'll make the comparisons and, and, and all that, but it has nothing to do with why Jesse Marsh got fired. Jesse Marsh got fired because they're worried about being relegated and they want to make sure they do everything in their power not to do it. And so they're going to make a change. We as Americans, we can laugh at ourselves. We as Americans that work in the soccer community, we can laugh at ourselves too. Yeah, we, we take what we do seriously. We don't take our, ourselves too seriously. So yeah, I don't think that Ted Lasso had anything uh, any, anything to do with this. But ultimately, I, I think let's spin it now to the national team, because as we said, he is going to be a candidate. Do you think, my friend, that Jesse Marsh is the best candidate out there for the job, given his resume and given what has happened? I think he's the best American candidate. There's this larger question about whether they should go American or foreign. Mm -hmm. If you could get a big name foreign coach. I'd have to see who it is and if it if it's the right fit. But I think from the American pool right now, he would be the best. Okay. Why? Because he's coached in Europe? I mean, why is he better than, I don't know, uh, Peter Vermes or Steve Cherundolo? I mean, you're, you're or... selling his MLS uh, work short a little bit. He was pretty good with the Red Bulls, sure. uh, Supporter Shield. I like the way that team played. So um, 
so no, I think his overall body of work, um, I, I think you'd be so he's coached more candidate. places. Then that's 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 why. Look, I, I, I I'm, as you know, I often say for, form is fallacy when it comes to players. Just because you're good in a club situation doesn't necessarily going to be good in the international position uh, situation. And that applies to coaches too. That's that's not to say that Jesse Marsh can't be not just good but can't be great with the national team. As a matter of fact, without that threat of relegation in a national team situation, maybe that's the perfect type of situation for him where he can think a little bit more long-term. Obviously, he has players uh, to work with and a, a very good uh, very good group. But I think there's a lot of other candidates out there that don't necessarily have the European background that certainly would, uh, would be part of that. And I do think that given what happened last time around with Greg Berhalter, whether they want to do it or not, even just for the way that it looks publicly, they are going to make sure, I would say they, the U.S. Soccer Federation, whoever ultimately is in charge of this, and we still don't know, is going to make sure that they go through a thorough process and interview whoever they need to interview and make sure that it is done in a much more upfront um, and visible type of way to avoid some of the problems and the criticisms that happened when Greg Berhalter was fired. And Greg Berhalter still, by all accounts, is part of that candidate list, uh, ultimately. So we're going to turn this into a little Americans in Europe segment okay. because there was some good stuff in Germany. Uh, Union Berlin, 2-1 home victory over Mainz. Jordan Pifaw comes off the bench late in the game and minutes later scores the game winner. His first goal since mid-September. He had gone 14 games in all competitions without finding the back of the net, but he does here. So good news for a striker who Greg Berhalter did not take to the World Cup. <laughs> Yeah, every time somebody uh, with an American passport does something good on the soccer field that wasn't in Qatar, it's a strike against Greg Berhalter. That's how we're going to play this one out. Look, it's wonderful for him. It, he Remember, he had that long run, and it's feast or famine right now with him, but this is great. And that it's happening for a team that at least now is putting pressure and and making it somewhat interesting. I think when all is said and done, it's still going to be back to the same uh, the usual suspect, which is Bayern Munich. But hey, that's a that's a that's a good thing. And as this we, we talked about, the new national team coach comes in, whoever that ultimately this person is, and even if it's Greg Berhalter, uh, you know, and we just saw Brandon Vasquez get a chance. You know, there, I think there's going to be room, especially for that number nine position and players that are scoring goals to come in and maybe uh, you know restate their case. Uh, this result temporarily moved Union Berlin into first place, but they did not finish the weekend there. We'll tell you why in the next segment. Uh, Dortmund also victorious this weekend, 5-1 over Freiburg. First off, Sebastian Haller scored, which was great to see. Another Wonderful step in his comeback. Yep. Uh, but Gio Reyna comes off the bench in the second half and scores the fifth and final goal. His third goal since returning from the World Cup, all of them off the bench. This kid, huh? Gio Reyna. How about this? I mean, he comes in, scores, like you said, his third goal off the bench. And in doing so, uh, confirms and validates what Greg Berhalter obviously believes and basically said all along, is that this player at this point in his career and, in, and where he is from a physical perspective is best used as a wonderful option off of the bench to come in a game and make a difference there you go so you think all these goals off the bench are actually vindicating berhalter's handling of him during the world cup well both coaches now have said that this is a player that is not a hundred percent okay and from a physical perspective is not yet where he needs to be and both coaches 
have been using him as a tactic and a uh, um, an insertion that can hopefully come on and to great effect change the game uh, from an attacking perspective. And so I, I think that this is at this point what Gio Reyna is, but I don't think that Gio Reyna coming and <laughs> scoring goals uh, in a substitute capacity is again, vindication or validation of those that, uh, that hate Greg Berhalter. Uh, in other news, an MLS team played a competitive match this weekend. The Seattle Sounders eliminated in the quarterfinals of the Club World Cup. They fell 1-0 to Egyptian side Al-Ali. The goal came very late, kind of a fluky deflection, a frustrating way to lose the game. So Seattle is out. They yep. will not face Real Madrid. What did you make of an MLS team's maiden voyage in the Club World Cup? I mean, look, th this was a MLS team that looked like they were in preseason. Now, Seattle wasn't great last year after a CONCACAF Champions League. As a matter of fact, they were historically bad relative to what they have been uh, and, and didn't make the playoffs. So what you are getting now is not only not the best version of the Seattle Sounders, but not even close to the best MLS team or arguably, not arguably, I don't, I don't even think it's arguably the best team in CONCACAF, but they're the title winners. And so therefore they get the privilege of being able to do that. Having said that, because, you know, Al-Ali is, is well into their season. They are a juggernaut uh, domestically. And so they came up against a good team. But even saying all that, there was an opportunity there for Seattle to win this game, to, to, uh, to score goals and to do much better and to you know, provide a much better account of themselves and therefore CONCACAF and, and MLS, which they didn't. And that's what's, that's what's ultimately disappointing. But it's not an excuse that MLS is in preseason. It's, it's the reality. Everybody understands that. But you choose when your season is. You choose when to play your season for a number of different reasons, including absolutely legitimate reasons, business reasons and scheduling reasons and cultural reasons, all those different things. And this is just the way that it falls in the schedule. And so it's it's no ex, it's no excuse and it should be looked at as um disappointing and ultimately a failure on Seattle because it's one thing if you lose to Real Madrid it's another thing if you lose to Al Ali which is a a very good team and they have they have proven that but you know, Seattle yeah i was i was disappointed and uh you know back to the drawing board i thought they played a pretty good first half uh, they were the better team. Didn't create very many chances, but had more of the ball. Were on the front foot. The flow of the game was in their favor. And then the second half, it flipped to Al-Ali, which you have to think was down to fitness. Um, listen, as I said for months, this quarterfinal match has been a 50-50 proposition for Mexican clubs through the year. They lose it a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So I don't, think there's, I don't think there's any great shame in Seattle losing, but it is a missed opportunity because, and I might piss some people off by saying this, um, Seattle is the first MLS club to take part in the Club World Cup. Uh, nobody can ever take that away from them. That's a fact. But the Club World Cup begins in earnest in the semifinals. Yeah. From the moment Seattle won CCL, all anybody's been talking about is a prospect of them facing Real Madrid. So, you know, there were some people on Twitter trying to act like this. they got some incredible rush out of watching Seattle play Al-Ali in a half-empty stadium. To me, that's a stretch. The, the game that would have engendered that feeling and would have really been a momentous occasion for MLS, a kind of a how far we've come moment would have been the Real Madrid game. You it didn't quite have, get yeah. that. So you didn't get the prestige payoff you were hoping for. But let's let's also be honest. The Club World Cup really starts with the next version of it, okay? That is going to have so many more teams, so many more opportunities, so many more bites at the apple for 
if it's MLS teams or any kind of, uh, kind of CONCACAF team there. And so when you put all of your eggs into this basket where it's just uh, Seattle in this situation. So, yeah, I understand what you're saying. But in the future, the Club World Cup is going to look very, very different. Although I still say, and watching that Super League doc recently reinforced this, that expanded Club World Cup, folks, is not about helping shine a light on these other regions. Johnny Infantino wants big European clubs to play each other in matches of import under the FIFA umbrella. He wants in on the UEFA Champions League action. So that competition is going to be designed in such a way to dispose of the riffraff in the group stage. And what Johnny Infantino wants is from the knockout stages on it to be all European clubs, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern, PSG, all facing each other. So I don't know. I, I'm you're curious so, to see how you're that. so cynical. You are just <laughs> such a cynic. I, however, I choose to see the good. I choose to see the light. I choose love. I choose romance, my friend. And I don't think that that's the case at all. As a matter of fact, I think that Johnny Infantino and this, uh, you know, this current uh, leadership when it comes to FIFA is wanting to expand and spread that gospel. And they would be incredibly delighted to not only have these wonderful European teams, but teams from all over the world repre representing the world that is FIFA. Fair enough. <laughs> um, all right, that is it. Uh, okay, that's it. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, as Mossy mentioned, we'll take a, a quick review about all the different stuff that happened uh, over in England and all over Europe. Don't go anywhere. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, welcome back. Uh, Mossy, all sorts of stuff happened uh, over the weekend. Lots of soccer to watch. I, as as you all know now uh, that I've proclaimed my love for Leeds relative to its Americanness, I set my alarm for 5.45 and, uh, you know, turned, uh, turned over and watched Leeds and all of the Americans play and Jesse Marsh coach. I didn't know at the time, but it was the last, uh, last time. But that was not the only game. There were all sorts of games and... Plenty of news breaking this morning relative to off-field shenanigans, shall we say. And we're going to begin there. Um, believe it or not, the Premier League have their own financial fair play rules separate from UEFA. And Manchester City were notified today they're being charged with violating financial fair play over a course of nine seasons. And the case has been turned over to an independent commission, which is going to review the facts and assess the punishment. It could range from a points deduction to even relegation. Manchester City are claiming they're innocent. They think when this independent commission reviews the facts, they're going to be absolved. Remember, a couple years ago, UEFA tried to punish them for financial fair play violations. They appealed to our good friends at the Court of Arbitration for Sport mm -hmm. and won the appeal. So they didn't get punished, ultimately. Uh, it sounds like they can't appeal this to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. So it's all going to rest on this independent commission. So massive news coming out of England. And the potential penalty is not just a points reduction, but even possibly being kicked out of the EPL. Uh, you know, <laughs> this is hilarious. Okay, so a couple of things. One, you know, the financial play, uh, fair play rules, whether it's the, the greater ones or the individual ones, are you know, kind of guidelines, let's be honest, in the way that they are uh, um, 
judged and the way in which they in which they are used used. And let's also be honest: has Man City, the uh, the modern version of Man City, has it not helped the EPL? Has it not been beneficial, not just to Man City as a brand, which obviously is night and day in terms of its global exposure uh, and its um, and its relevance around the world, but also the way that it has helped the EPL become the most popular uh, and the uh, uh, you know the most expensive um, and the most profitable league in the world through their actions. And again, we talked about this last week on the uh, on the pod. If people want to spend money. It's not my money. Go ahead, spend as much as you want. If you're not going to have a salary cap, then do whatever the hell you want and get the best possible team on the field. And I'm not saying that there's not a need for restrictions and regulations and laws uh, that uh, that are governed uh, that are governed, or that if and when you break them, you there should you shouldn't suffer consequences. But you know, are they going to bite off their nose to spite their face uh, by doing something like this? Yeah, with the Manchester Cities and PSGs, there is this whole separate issue of sports washing. But putting that aside, yeah, a lot of people feel like financial fair play is a move by the old aristocratic clubs to try to prevent new clubs from uh, rising up. And so they actually don't like it. They think that if you get bought by a super rich owner tomorrow, you should reap the benefits from that. And it gives smaller clubs a chance to rise up overnight. And what's so wrong with that? We get more big spending clubs in the game like City and PSG. So, uh, yeah, there, there are some people that think like you that, that think all this financial fair play stuff is actually nonsense. But, but financial fair play restrictions and rules and regulations, uh, even you know, the individual leagues, they are propped up as to, uh, you know, to help with competitiveness or to help with parity. But that's not the case at all. That's not, you can't do that if you're allowed to really, if there's no salary cap, and there's no roster limitations. It means you can only spend relative to your revenue, and you're still going to have super clubs that generate lots more revenue than others because they're bigger right. brands. So you're still going to have the Real Madrid's and Manchester United's being able to spend a lot more than most clubs. But the Real Madrid's and Manchester United's, they don't want clubs like PSG and Manchester City to be able to join them just by virtue of having a super rich owner. And so the issue is Manchester City are being accused of lying in their accounting books about how much money they're bringing in in sponsorships and when it, in fact, it's just the owner spending their own money. So that's the issue. But there. this should have just should have been sorted out. I vividly remember when these nation states started coming in, and you know this, you know the incredible oil money started to flow in. People said, "Oh, careful!" And PSG was the same way. Careful, because what they're going to do is they're going to use sponsorships as a way to circumvent these types of uh, of laws. So this was clearly stated and public that this was a possibility and a potential problem when it all started and it wasn't nipped in the bud. They didn't they didn't fix it right now. And so that it is now coming back to roost. I, I I'm not I'm not absolving Man City if they if they broke the rules. I'm just I'm just saying that this was foreseen and you know should have been dealt with in that moment. And so now that it has happened the train has left the station because if I'm a mid-level EPL team and I'm making money and I'm making more money because of what in totality the EPL has become and in large part to teams like Man City and what they are doing and how attractive uh, they are, 
Am I gonna, you know, scream and yell that, oh, it's it's not fair and I, you know, I can't I, I can't compete, but I'm still gonna cash those checks and I'm still gonna take the windfall that comes in. Ultimately, is the EPL as interesting and as exciting and as valuable if they kick out uh, Man City going forward? And yeah, you still have your legacy clubs and your and your history history out there. And I know that if it wasn't Man City, it might be looked at a different way because of the nouveau riche type of framing of Man City. But I still think that it, the EPL doesn't benefit from Man City not being in it. And I know you want to send a message and all that kind of stuff, but this might be a bridge too far. Now, there are fans of clubs that have finished second to Manchester City in the Premier League over this span who think City should be stripped of their titles and it should be awarded to those clubs. So I've seen Liverpool fans, Manchester United fans making noise on Twitter about that. The only thing I'm going to say about that is in 2013, Michigan lost a national championship game to Louisville in basketball. Louisville has since had to void that title because they violated NCAA rules, but that title did not go to Michigan. So uh, it, it, it should just be voided. Hey, look, there, there's a precedent there. I'm sorry that the Premier League needs to follow. Again, if they are convicted in this case of cheating, which is ultimately what it is, then yeah, they should suffer the consequences. And if it's ill-gotten gains, there has to be, like in many instances, a clawback a clawback of the successes that you had and stripped because if they were gotten because you cheated and you violated the rules as much as I think that they're ridiculous, then yeah, you have to, I mean, stop breaking the law. One last point on this, then we'll move on. Pep could very plausibly say, listen, this is above my pay grade. I am the coach. I can't speak to whether we're falsifying accounting books and what our sponsorship deals are. All I can do is ask for a player. And if they tell me that we can sign them and still be in compliance with financial fair play, who am I to argue with that? He could say that. And I think he'd be okay. But instead, he acts all indignant in these press conferences. How dare you question how we do things? And he, he might end up looking like an idiot at the end if they are proven. to. <laughs> he also might ultimately benefit from it because if it, and I, I don't I, I'm not they're not going to pep for a sponsorship deal and getting his legal analyst, a, a, analysis of what's going on and writing up the contracts or anything like that. But whether it's Pep and the coaching staff or any of the players, I mean, I don't know what the rules are ultimately, but conceivably they could say, well, the, the situation has completely changed and they should be absolved of their contracts. I mean, can you imagine if like that, everybody, including Pep, was now a free agent and go anywhere in the world without any transfer fee? If City get relegated, I do think Pep will need a new challenge. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, he and the players, they can argue that this is not of their doing, not their responsibility, and it restricts, it, it restricts them, and therefore they should be let out of what existing contract they have, or maybe even paid out with whatever contract that they have, and be able to uh, move on free. Oh my God, can you imagine the, uh, the fire sale? On the field, it wasn't a great weekend for City either. I'm going to start with Everton Arsenal first to do it in chronological order because Everton pulled off a 1-0 win over Arsenal. James Tarkowski with the only goal early in the second half. So Sean Dyche victorious on his debut. And that opened the door for City to close the gap on Arsenal. But they suffered a 1-0 defeat themselves away to Tottenham. Harry Kane with the only goal, the 200th of his Premier League career, the 267th of his Tottenham career. He surpasses Jimmy Greaves as Tottenham's record goal scorer. So the gap stays five. Um, this is the only thing I want to say about Manchester City. I know these conversations about whether a team is actually better without their big star can feel very hipsterish, but 
they've scored the same amount of goals as a team right now that they had at this point in the Premier League last season, which is surprising when you consider Erlen Holland's exploits. And what mm. that speaks to is we all thought, oh my God, this is crazy. You're already taking this great attacking team that scores lots of goals and you're adding Erlen Holland's goals to it. They haven't really added his goals. They've just reproportioned them. They're all coming from one guy now as opposed to this balanced attack. And you tell me as a defender, is it tougher to face a team where you know it's all on that one guy or a team where it's different players popping up and scoring from different positions? Well, ultimately what you are describing is a predictable situation. And any team, any coach, any defender says, look, if I already know what's going to happen, if I can predict it, then at least I have the ability to defend it. And to your point, if it's coming from all different directions, that's very, very difficult because you spread yourself thin. But if everything, like you said, is all coming, and that, I think that was what the fear was. It's not that Erlen Holland can't score a lot of goals, and he will, but what's plan B? Or is there a plan B? Or if you had a plan B over the years, now has that plan B been kind of shoved to the side because this plan A has been so effective. But when you come up against teams that are able to neutralize, and as great as he is, at some point you are going to come up against coaches who are smart enough and players who are smart enough to be able to neutralize uh, this player. And even even just limiting his opportunities, that can help you uh, that can help you win a game here. And they were given a gift. I'm talking about Man City. They were given this gift because of the result, uh, because of the Arsenal result to make up that uh, that gap. And they said, no, we don't want it. And to be fair, Spurs decided on the day to actually play well. And congratulations to Harry Kane. It is the hardest thing to do in our game. It's why we pay the people to do it the, uh, the most and why they get all, all of the attention. And when you have somebody that has done it as consistently as he has done, and the value of that is, you know, it's just, it's incredible. What what uh, what he is, what he has meant to that team. It's why every single year we have rumors of him possibly going here and him possibly going there. But you know, if he doesn't go anywhere, no. Even if he goes someplace, he will always be a legend. And so that was really nice to see, and that he did it against Man City, this this juggernaut of a team, and in doing so, you know, maybe put put the gap to a point where they're not going to be able to catch Arsenal. Uh, it was special. It was a special day for him and a special day for Spurs. Uh, Manchester United, 2-1 winners over Crystal Palace. Bruno Fernandes and Marcus Rashford with their goals. Chris Richards started for Palace. But the big story here, there was a brouhaha in the second half. Was it really brouhaha? Casemiro came in, I think, to play the role of peacekeeper, right? but he did it in a clumsy way. He grabbed Will Hughes by the neck. They reviewed it. Straight red card, three-game suspension. You're shaking your head. You did not agree with this decision. No, I mean, you, you touch the guy in the neck, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna get it. But how do you say soft in Portuguese? Is there, is there a when, when a when a guy gets thrown off for a, a lame red card? Can what do you say when uh, when you're speaking down there in uh, Brazil? Expulsão questionável. Okay, there it was definitely expulsão questionável. Okay, but it's Casemiro, you know, and he's got a rep, and he's got a you know a, a reputation, but. You know, ultimately, they got the win. The problem for Manchester United is Casemiro has come in and been a huge, huge part of the success and the rejuvenation process. So any time he's not on the field, they are they are losing something. And he's he's not a talisman or anything like that, but he's very, very quickly made himself indispensable. The Premier League schedule is very quirky this season, but this is the height of quirkiness. 
Manchester United's next two league games are against Leeds United. They play mm-hmm. Wednesday at Old Trafford and then Sunday at Ellen Road. So Casemiro will miss both those games and then they face Leicester after that. He will be back for that League Cup final against Newcastle. So will Bruno Guimarães, who we talked about in the last pod. So I will get that battle of Brazilian midfielders at Wembley that day that I'm salivating over. Uh, but it does hurt United, as you mentioned, to not have... Uh, Casemiro for the next three games and for the next two, whoever replaces Jesse Marsh on the Leeds bench is right, going good to luck with that. benefit from his absence. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I still think it's going to be uh, it's tough for whoever comes in for Leeds. Uh, two more quick ones in the Premier League. Chelsea, with all their signings, all that money spent, uh, still held to a nil-nil draw at home against Fulham. Uh, there are stories that um, LAFC are after Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Ooh, interesting. I guess he would be the replacement for Christian Arango. Liverpool got drilled 3-0 away to Wolves. Uh, Jurgen Klopp, very cranky afterwards. What was he yelling at that uh, report? I, I, God, I hate that. I hate when coaches you know, go off on reporters and members uh, of the media. I get it. I know it's, it's easy and it's sitting in front of you, and I get at times that you don't think what was written about you was, was fair. But it's, it's a power imbalance. And it just makes you look small and it makes you look weak. And by the way, it sounds like it was a case of mistaken identity. The guy he yelled at wasn't the guy who wrote whatever thing he was upset about. It's just so it makes it, it even it's worse. A bad look. You're and I get it. You're you're under the gun here and it's not going well for you right now. And he's got plenty of leash. But but this is not going to just be fixed overnight. You know, Virgil van Dyke's coming back, which is an important piece, but it's much more than that. They just they don't look like they they know how they want to play. And it, right now, uh, whether it's the interviews after or his demeanor or the actual play on the field, it looks like Klopp has just lost control as to what this team is and what he wants them to do, which is n- something we've never said about the legend that is Klopp relative to Liverpool. I will say the reporter he yelled at the guy named James Pierce, who I do find to be a bit of a douchebag, so I didn't mind that moment. I know <laughs> Keith Costigan and Zach Kenworthy love this guy, but uh, I do not. So, um, I just, yeah, just don't don't do that, you know. Uh, in Germany, we already mentioned that Union Berlin and Dortmund both won this week, and that put the pressure on Bayern Munich. But they responded four-two victory away to Wolfsburg. They jumped on them early, scored three goals in the first twenty minutes, en route to that victory. Coman twice. Muller and Musiala with the goals. João Cancelo started, played very well. Bayern fans are already very excited about his arrival. And, you know, they, this is about when Bayern Munich says, all right, enough, uh, enough of this. And still only one point uh, ahead of, uh, as we said, Union Berlin. And, but this was obviously a very, very important result given what happened last week. Yeah, it's Bayern at 40, Union Berlin 39, Dortmund 37. So the race very tight in Germany. In France, uh, PSG, 2-1 winners over Toulouse. Neymar and Mbappe both sat out with injuries, so the spotlight was on Lionel Messi. And surprise, surprise, he delivered. He scored a gorgeous game-winning goal. Marseille and Lens both dropped points, so PSG now eight points clear in Ligue 1. Not to pat myself on the back, but I do have them winning that I know. This you, year. Listen, you don't need pats on the back, but I'll give them to you every uh, every once in a while. You know, the Messi, uh, the Messi goal was was fun it's and anytime you you you've, if you've played soccer or if you've watched soccer there's this moment where somebody dribbles through a bunch of different people and they you know and everybody's basing the shot off of the player that has the ball 
And in the moment when that player should have wound up and hit the ball, Messi just kind of comes in and goes the absolute opposite opposite way and throws the goal. The goalkeeper, by the time he he dove, the ball was in the back of the net and almost being walked back to the center circle. So uh, good result for the, for PSG. By the way, the Mbappe injury, they're saying he's going to miss the first leg of their Champions League round of 16 tie Uh-oh. against Bayern Munich. Bayern boss Julian Nagelsmann bristled at that. He said he expects him to play in that game. I will say if he doesn't, it does shine a light again on that failed move for Hakim Ziyech on deadline day. Not that he would have been an adequate replacement for Mbappe, but it still would have been a decent option to have. Yep. Uh, but I uh, mean, that paperwork. Yep. <laughs> the fax machine. <laughs> um, in Spain, uh, Stu Holden's Mallorca. Oh, my goodness. One nil winners over Real Madrid. A feisty affair. Vinicius was battling with Mallorca players all game. Uh, Benzema and Militong sat out with injuries, and then Thibaut Courtois picked up an injury in warmups. He missed the game as well. All three of those guys questionable for the Club World Cup. So Real Madrid limping into that competition, and this very damaging for their La Liga hopes. Yeah, I mean, when Barcelona ultimately hold the trophy, and after this weekend, I think that they can pretty much be assured of holding it now that they have an eight-point lead. They should absolutely take a moment to turn to Stu Holden and company over there at Mallorca and say thank you very much, because this is a huge huge result that, that I think it makes it insurmountable when it comes to uh, the eight-point lead. So uh, they might have, in this moment, basically handed Barcelona the uh, La Liga championship. Uh, Stu Holden texted us this week and he said, why aren't you talking more about Mallorca on the pod? I said, you have to do a Wrexham-style right. documentary. Go That's sign good. some Americans, all right? Yep. I mean... <laughs> Uh, now, incidentally, the reason Barcelona's lead is up to eight points is because they took care of their business. 3-0 home win over Sevilla. Jordi Alba, Gavi, and Rafinha with the goals. The only bit of bad news, Sergio Busquets picked up an injury. He's going to be out the next few weeks. Uh, Sean Sullivan put in the rundown. Not good with UCL a couple of weeks away. I don't know if he's trolling Barcelona for being out of the Champions League or he forgot that they're out of the Champions League. They are, in fact, in the Europa League. They face Manchester United in that competition. So Busquets could miss those matches. Like anybody, especially when you're Barcelona, can win Champions League. It's the Europa League where is where it at. That's the hipster type of thing uh, to be down there. So, you know, <laughs> Lewandowski and company can go and figure that out. Uh, finally, uh, in Italy, the big one was the Milan Derby. Inter 1-0 victory over AC Milan. Lautaro Martinez with the only goal. So Inter remain in second place. Milan really struggling. They're out of the top four right now. And the top four is all we're really talking about in Italy because Napoli are running away with the title. They took care of business this weekend. 3-0 victory away to Spezia. Ossiman with two more goals. Varadzkelia also found the back of the net. Jesse uh, Mars through Milan. There we go. Well, And then one final, final thing in this segment. Uh, as I mentioned, the Champions League knockout stage right around the corner. And clubs had to update their squads. Serginho Des not included in AC Milan's squad, which is further evidence that he is not really part of their plans there. Uh, Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna in their respective squads for Chelsea and Dortmund. Those two clubs meet in the round of 16. Those are really the two prominent Americans still left, along with Serginho Des, but he's not going to play sure. a part. Uh, Milan facing Tottenham in the next round. So, yeah, that's right around the corner. Excited for that. The European competition's returning. I think there's going to be a lot of movement this summer when it comes to American players, you know, uh, and you just mentioned Serginio Dest and whether it's the return to the club that then has to figure out what they're going to do with them. And obviously, if you were loaned out, that's a good indication that you, they're, you're not part of their plans, um, you know, unless you're a young player and they're just getting you getting you time and bringing you back much more cultured. And I don't think that's the case when it comes to Serginio uh, or anybody else. But hopefully this summer provides some 
more interesting and, and positive stories when it comes to uh, all these American players in terms of movement. Anything else, Mossy? That is it. Okay, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, oh, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Okay, welcome back, and it's time for Ask Alexi, that point in the uh, pod when we pick out a couple of questions out there from uh, social media or our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297. You actually see it behind us here if you're watching the show. 657-549-2297. You send us in those questions, or you can use that hashtag, Ask, Ask Alexi, like I said, on all the uh, social media platforms. And by the way, our social media platforms um, include our handles, which are S-O-T-U with Alexi. What do we have this week, Mossy? Uh, a couple of voicemails. Let's hear the first one right now. Hey, Alexi and Mossy. Uh, this is Nate from Chicago. Uh, I just had a quick question about goalkeepers. Um, first of all, Alexi, I just wanted to ask who do you think was the best goalkeeper you ever played with or against? Um, I have a feeling you're going to say Tony Miola, but outside of that, against would be a good answer. And also, what do you think the future United States position lies with goalkeeping? Because obviously there's Gaga Salina coming in. And I think he is the future. Matt Turner's getting a little older. Um, so what do you think the next World Cup is going to look like with the U.S. goalkeeper situation? Thank you guys for everything. Have a great rest of your night. Thank you. Okay. Nate from uh, Chicago. A good question. Uh, goalkeepers, right? Yeah, you, you can't live with them and you can't throw them off a bridge. Uh, they are a necessary evil. And uh, over the years, they have certainly saved my ass <laughs> as they've saved many uh, when it comes to uh, center backs. Okay. So I think I've told you this before, but you're, you're first off, you're absolutely right when it comes to um, my respect and love for Tony Miola. I think Tony Miola was oftentimes a goalkeeper out of time in that his ability with his feet even when he started where the goalkeepers could kind of just pick up the ball from a pass back. Um, and certainly it's night and day relative to the emphasis that we put on being good with your feet. He was already sweeper keeping um, and distributing the ball in a way that I hadn't seen before. And ultimately for a goalkeeper, you need to save the ball. It's the most important thing. So it's all fine and well to be good with your feet, but you got to save the ball. I've told this, uh, this story before, but it bears repeating. If, if you had come and watched training back in 1994 of the U.S. men's national team, you would have seen uh, the likes of Tony Miola and of uh, Brad Friedel. Um, and you would have left training and you would have said, there's not a chance in hell that Brad Friedel is not the starter of this team, if you didn't know anything about the team. Uh, Tony was not great in training, but he was a gamer. Because then what would happen is you would then go to a game and Tony would stand on his head and Tony would be saving anything. You need look at only, you know, for example, the, the game against England. We ultimately won, but Tony made some incredible saves and just 
completely snuffed out uh, Ian Wright's chances. And Brad, unfortunately, would get in the game and not necessarily make a mistake himself, but himself, but just be associated with games that just didn't go well and let and, and letting goals. So ultimately, you need somebody that is good on the field. And Brad had his moment later on after after Tony after Tony's time, and is an incredible uh, goalkeeper in of his in in his own right. So yeah, I would say for me, the best goalkeeper that I played with. Um, was uh, was Tony Miola for the way that he saved the ball and for the way that he distributed the ball. And I think he would be incredibly valuable in today's game, in today's era, in the way that he played with the ball at his feet. Uh, as far as going forward in the future, you mentioned Matt Turner getting older. I don't think that that has any impact on him relative to 2026. So I while I think that Slonina is certainly going to be around, and we've already seen glimpses of what he can do even in this last camp, uh, he still has a long way to go. I don't think he'll be the starter uh, when it comes to 2026. I think that will be Matt, uh, Matt Turner. I think it's his to lose. Um, you know, Zach Steffen still is young enough, and still, if he gets on a run, could be a possibility, even though it didn't work, work out. And you might say that that train has left the station, but... Yeah, I mean, I think that it's still Matt Turner's to lose. And I think ultimately when that whistle blows in 2026 and the U.S. takes the field wherever it is against whoever it is in the uh, in the Men's World Cup back in the United States, it's going to be Matt Turner barring any type of injury. What do you think? You know who loved Tony Miola as a goalkeeper? Who? Dan Petrescu. Really? <laughs> You're such a jerk. You're such a jerk. Uncalled for. Well, go ahead. Explain to people because there's a lot of people that have no idea what you're talking about. So go ahead. Uh, in the 94 World Cup against Romania, Tony gave up a goal where he didn't cover the near post properly. And I will defend him to this day because the amount of times that Tony Miola cut out the cross and therefore cut out dangerous situations by cheating the cross. And yet, usually, you know, it's, it, it, it bites you in the worst possible moment. But I, that doesn't bother me to be quite honest with uh, with you, because the benefit that we had over time of Tony recognizing that 99.9% .9 of the time, they're not going to do that. And therefore I can get off my line and I can cheat it and I can go out and win that cross and snuff things out before it gets to be problematic. I'll take that all day long. Now, part of the question was best goalkeeper you've played against. So, yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of anyone that just was incredible. I mean, Jorge Campos was really interesting. And he was incredibly frustrating because you never knew what he was going to do. And psychologically, he messed with you because you look at him and he's, you know, this small guy in this, you know, crazy peacockish type of uniform, throwing the ball out and doing crazy things on the field and running down the field. But he actually was a much better shot stopper than people give him, give him credit for. And some of the antics kind of took away from that. Um, and so it was always interesting playing with him because it was not only just about getting the ball past him, but it was also what is he going to do? And is he going to start uh, a situation that I'm going to have to, uh, to snuff out? I'd have to, I'd have to think more about, cause nobody, I don't think that, I don't remember anybody really, like I said, doing a Tony Miola and standing on his head or for that matter, a Casey Keller uh, against Brazil uh, year, uh, years later. I don't remember somebody doing that against the U S uh, we have another voicemail. Let's listen to it now. Hi, Alexi, Mossy. My name is Matt, calling from James Island, South Carolina. My question is for both of you, hoping to get your opinions on something. My friend Killian currently lives in Portland, Oregon. Uh, he previously lived in Seattle. 
for a few years and was a staunch supporter of the Sounders at the time. Now that he's in Portland and he's lived there for a couple of years now, he has switched loyalties to the Timbers. So he owns scarves of both Portland and Seattle. I know your opinion on scarves, Alexi. But with Seattle, Portland allegedly being one of the great MLS rivalries, is it okay for my friend Killian to have switched loyalties to the other half of such a bitter rival? Of course it's okay, but is it really okay? I uh, love the podcast, guys. Keep up the amazing work. All right, thanks. Bye. Oh, Matt, this is this is wonderful in that it is it is timely. Uh, over the last week, we've talked a lot about this uh, this evergreen topic of defining fandom and the ever changing definition of what fandom is and how different cultures define it differently. And fair weather or fly by night. Uh, types of fandom that people, you know, look down on and all this kind of stuff. As you mentioned, it's it's fine. I have, I have no problem with it. And in this particular instance, because of what, uh, as you rightly point out, uh, Seattle and Portland have held themselves up to be, and in many cases, lived up to as these preeminent types of not just teams in MLS, but lifestyles, if you will. Um, this is this is great because ultimately at the core of this is that battle, that battle off the field, that battle for hearts and minds. And I know that your friend Killian, there will be people that will, like I said, look down their nose or scoff or spit. Don't spit on anybody, but, you know, spit at the mere thought of changing your allegiance, especially from Seattle uh, to Portland. But if he truly feels that this is a team that speaks to him because of any number of reasons, including the situation that he finds himself in and speaks to him in a way that makes him happy, that makes him excited, that makes him proud, that makes him want to scream and yell and dance and sing, then that that is a good thing. That is that is a, a that is a wonderful thing. Now, will he be excommunicated <laughs> or will he be shunned from uh, the, uh, the Seattle fan base for what he has dared, uh, dared to do? Maybe. And that just kind of comes, comes with the territory. But this decision of his, in no way, shape, or form, the way that I see things and the way that I define fandom, makes him any less of a fan, makes him any less educated, makes him any less passionate about the game, or in this case, about the team that he chooses to support. And I know a lot of people disagree, and they say, no, you, this is your team, and therefore this is your family, and you don't, get to, you don't get to pick it, or you don't get to choose it. It chooses you. A lot of people say that all the time. No, you actually, you do get to pick it. And if and when you pick it, there might come along something that's better for whatever reason. And it might even involve winning and losing. But whatever it is that excites you, that's your team. And it might only be temporary. And I know the thought of temporary fandom scares and irritates and maddens people out there. But if, if you truly believe in your brand and in your team and in the fandom that is surrounding your team, 
then you should be comfortable that it is going to attract somebody and be able to retain them regardless of where they move or what happens in their life on or off the field going forward. So I say, yes, Killian, you do you, my friend, and you got my back. And who knows, maybe next year you'll be back or you'll go to someplace else. And that's okay. It doesn't make you any less of a fan. Do you think it's acceptable for a lifelong LA Galaxy fan to switch to LAFC in the last few years because LAFC speak to them? Yep, absolutely. Be better. Be better. Why are they switching? It could be convenience. I live closer or I have a better time when I go and watch LAFC. And I'm just making this up because there's plenty of people that might uh, have the opposite way. This is you are battling for hearts and minds. So do the things on and off the field that make people want to love you, that make people want to stay with you, that make people in that moment where they are deciding or are contemplating going someplace else saying, no, I'm not going to go there because this is where I enjoy it the most. Fair enough. Okay. But that doesn't apply to the national team. Club, uh, club is one thing. The national team, that's a different thing. Okay. That one, you don't get to pick. <laughs> Although you have these dual citizenship situations where people seem genuinely torn about which country to support. Yeah. But if, if you have a country where you were born and raised and lived in that country your whole life, that's your national yeah, team. Yeah, that's your national team. No. Yeah. I have spoken. All right. <laughs> Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. Another quick break. And uh, when we come back, I'll give you my one for the road. And uh, we're going to you know, finish up the story that I started telling you last week about uh, my trip to Salt Lake and uh, officiating a wedding. Don't go anywhere. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, welcome back. And it is the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Last week, I told you that I had the incredible privilege and pleasure of being invited to officiate a wedding um, of Kristen and Ryan in Salt Lake. And so on Friday, I, I flew out uh, to Salt Lake. I was picked up at the airport by uh, the groom's older sister, Heather. She was in incredible. She had a gift bag for me. And I ultimately uh, showed up and I did my job uh, that I was required to do and had such a wonderful time with uh, the lovely couple and meeting all of this <laughs> incredible extended family and they welcomed me in with open arms and um it was it was just a really really fun and exciting and um just wonderful experience to be around uh Kristen and Ryan and all of their friends and family uh, who were there to celebrate this uh, this magical moment and you know all of these different stories and i was hearing all about all the different brothers and the sisters and uh, the the parents and the friends, you know, and just you know, you know for example, Mossy. At, at one point, I met a uh, an older gentleman, and he was part of the family. He had actually uh, served in the military and was a goalkeeper. 
And they had a, uh, a caricature artist at the, at the wedding that was doing caricatures. And unfortunately, this man had lost his wife four months ago. And he ended up coming to the wedding to celebrate with this, with this family and with, with these friends uh, in, a, in a joyous moment. But, you know, his heart still, uh, you know, aching for the lost wife. And he pulled out a picture of her and the caricature artist did this wonderful picture of him and his deceased wife in this picture together and all of these different moments and stories. And so ultimately to be a part of that. And, you know, I mentioned before that, you know, Twitter can be a, just a, like I said, a toxic and a horrible, horrible place. And, uh, but it can also be wonderful and it can be kind and it can be beautiful. And when Kristen reached out on Twitter and uh, just asked me randomly if I would be uh, interested in doing that, um, it was wonderful. And it's through Twitter that we were able uh, to connect and ultimately have this happen. So thank you. Thank you to Kristen Ryan. I wish you a lifetime of uh, happiness and success and, and health. And thank you for letting me play a real, real small part of, uh, of your wonderful day and to meet all of your wonderful family, uh, and your friends. And, you know, she and her, uh, and her husband, Ryan are part of this soccer community. And ultimately while Twitter directly brought us together, soccer brought us together too, because Ryan, uh, from an early age has followed soccer and was just so, was, was so wonderful. And, you know, there wasn't soccer relative to uh to the wedding um other than you know my background in soccer and this connection that we had um in terms of him watching soccer uh growing up but it still was part of uh the soccer community and it's a beautiful community it's a wonderful family it keeps expanding and i talk all about uh, a lot of times about you know how important it is and how you know, wonderful and interesting and eccentric and um, romantic and different uh, that it is. But most importantly, it's, uh, it's inclusive and it welcomes people in. And I saw that firsthand of being welcomed into their family by way of the soccer family. And it was, while it was wonderful, it was not surprising. And uh, I see it whether it's here at the wedding or any other day when it comes to American soccer. So thanks again and uh, congratulations and best wishes to the, uh, uh, to the lovely couple. And thank you again uh, to, uh, to their family and friends for letting me be a, be a part. Anything Mossy before we go? Yeah, it seems like you had a great time judging by these pictures. Yes, uh, for those that uh, that aren't wa- uh, that aren't watching, yeah, we got, we have pictures flying in the background. The uh, the bride was looked beautiful. Uh, they both had on some really high end Nike high tops. Uh, that's the what the kids do nowadays. I I'm much more traditional, so I wear my dress shoes. And I know there's people out there <laughs> at times that will send me tweets about wearing dress shoes. And I'm you know I'm I'm gonna probably be the last person on television that actually wears. Uh, conventional uh, and traditional types of dress shoes when it comes to my uh, my coat and tie. But look, it, it, it's it's also it's a performance and it's and it's nerve wracking. You're up there and you want to make sure that you don't mess it up. And they were kind enough to run me through what they wanted me to say. And you're the one in the middle. Here. I'm the one in the middle, Mossy. Yep, that's me in the middle, and uh, that's uh, Kristen and uh, and Ryan there over uh, uh, over there in uh, in Salt Lake. And and as I mentioned, thanks a special thanks to. Uh, his older sister Heather, who, who picked me up and 
she had this gift bag of an assortment of things from Utah and whether it was candy or their local beer um, or, you know, other other things that uh, bath salts, all this kind of stuff that represented Salt Lake and represented Utah. So uh, they thought of they thought of everything and they were incredibly accommodating and uh, and wonderful and nice uh, to me in my brief but wonderful um, 24 hours in uh, in Salt Lake. All right. Uh, we will be back again later on in the week for our second pod. There's all sorts of stuff that continues to, to happen. I hope that you're having uh, or are going to have a wonderful a week. And who knows? We came in this morning, Mossy, and you know Jesse Marsh was fired and <laughs> potentially Mad City is out of the EPL. Uh, so who knows what's going to happen uh, later on in this week when it comes to the game. But we will have it for you and we will uh, cover it for you. We thank you for listening, for downloading, for subscribing, for sending in your tweets. Again, uh, if you want to use that hashtag Alexi on the social media platforms, fine. SOTU with Alexi. And if you want to send us in a uh, voicemail like Nate and Matt did, this week just send it uh, through at 657-549-2297 you can record it 657-549-2297 which is our state of the union podcast hotline we'll talk again next week and until then and as always my friends size the day <laughs>